Our text, verses 10 through 13, hear now God's word. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And thus far, the reading of God's word, and all God's people said, The materialist world, that is the one, the world that thinks uh, uh, that the only thing that is real are the things you can touch or see, uh, that denies the spiritual realities, it mocks the notion of a spiritual battle. A passage of scripture like this is pure fiction to them. And by the way, most universities that you send your children to, your young adults, will be working very, very hard to teach your children to ignore these truths. What makes us believers is that we believe there is a spiritual realm and that there is a spiritual battle and a spiritual war and these are real. And it would be hard to imagine a more radical antithesis regarding how we see reality. What's real? As a result, our values regarding things like eternal souls, unborn children, and who is on the Supreme Court will be polar opposites. We look at life and death as far more than biological events. We even see the trials of this life through a different lens. This is war. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The forces arrayed against us are constant and considerable. It wasn't that long ago in, in our country, in this world, that at least a person's home was a place of safe refuge. You could at least close out the world for a little. But now the world seeps in through the air. And now it infiltrates and occupies every corner, every inch. This unseen but powerful force never lets up. Day and night, it relentlessly presses forward. And if we're not self-consciously aware of this reality, these hostile forces will overcome our children, will overcome you. It does so every day. And while we sit here with our devices and games and television and movies and little by little, this spiritual battle is being conceded. As Neil Postman puts it, we are amusing ourselves to death. 
And if we don't understand the problem and the nature of the fight, then we are doomed to failure. So the first step is to realize that our call to be Christians, that is to be true followers of Jesus Christ, is, is a call to a genuine battle, to a real warfare. If there is no sense of urgency on your part, no preparation, no training, then surrender is your only option. Now, we can't honestly read our Bibles and miss the point that the Christian life is not easy. It is full of explicit, the Bible is full of explicit warnings to the contrary. But it's also full of hope and promise regarding how this war can be prosecuted and won. And while painting the most serious picture of the spiritual war that we are faced with, the New Testament sets forth the fact that we are more than conquerors in Christ. We are not left without hope or help. Likewise, in this official epistle to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul goes on to show us the path to victory. First, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then the second thing he says is that we are to put on the whole armor of God. And so, these are the two essential things for triumphant Christian living. No matter what happens today, or tomorrow, or next week, national, international, or personal, these two things are the remedy. Playing around on the sidelines of Christianity is of no use at all. This is not some vague psychological help in a crisis. To have some kind of mental mantra that we can say to somehow rise above whatever problems are going on and think happy thoughts. It is not intended to make you feel better, though it might do that. It is, when taken seriously, intended to motivate you to equip yourselves for this warfare and this service. And so let's consider today, very simply in this text, three things that, that uh, this text teaches us about this battle about this warfare. And I mean, I'll just mention the three, and then we'll come back and look at each one separately. First, the power of the devil. 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary the devil walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Second, our own weakness and our need for help. If we're going to be able to withstand the evil day that he talks about in this text, we have to recognize that we can't do that on our own. And how much of our time is spent trying to do that on our own? And then third, the power of God. And so let's take them one at a time. The power of the devil. In the book of Job, when God asked Satan where he had been, he said, uh, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. I like to remind everyone the devil is not omniscient. And I'm sorry, he is not, omni- he's not omniscient and he's not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. 
So if he's over tempting and uh, involved, if he's tempting Jesus in the wilderness, he wasn't somewhere else at the same time tempting someone else. However, he does have a host of helpers. He has a whole group of minions. And I, as I said that, I thought, now, he would, you know, the devil would love nothing more than you to immediately think of those funny little yellow characters that we have seen in Despicable Me. Because what the world loves to do, we love to make caricatures and cartoon characters out of the devil and out of his minions. And if we can laugh at it and, and treat it lightly, and that's not a shot at Despicable Me. I think it's fine to have fun with things as long as we're grown-ups and we understand there's a difference between cartoons and reality. A stark difference. They, the real ones, are truly sinister. They are your real enemies. And while they are not omnipresent, they are fast. And they, there are apparently a lot of them, a host. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, you remember the allegory, the story, that Christian, the character that's walking from, he's turned from the city of destruction to walk to the celestial city, he encounters one of the agents of Belzebub, or Satan, and his name is Apollyon. And so we read here from Pilgrim's Progress, But now in this valley of humiliation, poor Christian was challenged. For he had gone but a little way before he spotted a foul fiend coming over the field to meet with him, and his name was Apollyon. Then did Christian begin to be afraid and to cast in his mind whether to go back or to stand his ground. But he considered again that he had no armor for his back and therefore thought that to turn the back might give Apollyon greater advantage to easily pierce him with his darts. Therefore he resolved to venture and stand his ground. For, thought he, if I had no more in my eye than the saving of my life, it would be the best way to stand. And so he went on, and Apollyon met him. Now the monster was hideous, hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish, and they were his pride. And he had wings like a dragon, and feet like a bear, and out of his belly came fire and smoke, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion. And when he was come up to Christian, he beheld him with a disdainful countenance, and thus began to question him. Now, as we know from reading Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis did such a great job of showing all the different ways, or some of the different ways, as his imagination considered how might the devil and his minions go about destroying us or neutralizing us, making us ineffective as Christian soldiers. And one of the main ways these forces work against us is through subtlety, creating uncertainty and confusion about the essentials of the Christian faith. Ever hear somebody say something like, well, you know, I don't, I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to think about all that theology stuff. I don't need to think deep thoughts. As long as you love God and you love your neighbor, that's enough. You know, there's a lot of isms in the world, and most of them have a lot of problems. But 
one of the bigger problems in Christianity or those who use the name Christian is put your name there. So Boothism, Berkeyism, the Curliganism, that's harder to say. Doesn't fit on a bumper sticker that well. And that is, I'll just make up my own version. I'll take out, I'll, I'll reduce this down to the smallest possible thing. As long as we just love each other, that's enough, isn't it? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what it says? You see, they'll whisper, the, the, the demonic forces will whisper to you that the gospel can't be true. There has to be more than one way to God, right? Can't just be one way. That's unreasonable. The, this, this gospel, this Bible, is too exclusive. It's too demanding. It's, it's too hard. As Chesterton put it, Christianity has not been tried and found lacking. It has been found difficult and not tried. Do you remember when you used to be vigorous for the battle, but now you've grown weary and doubtful, or perhaps just comfortable and complacent? You see, the devil is always cutting deals. He's always making promises. And we are always prone to make excuses. Now, the power of the devil and his agents is not without limits. But I thought about this is really, I think, important. So he's not all-powerful. And his power is not without limits. However, all he has to do is be more powerful than you. If you're trying to stand on your own, then you are, and you're exposed and without armor, then you become easy prey because these spiritual forces are smarter. They've lived longer than you. And as I mentioned, they're fast. And they're more experienced than you are. Power is a relative term, and these forces are far more powerful than you alone. God has revealed in his infallible word that this isn't make-believe and it's not a fairy tale. The spiritual realm is as real as the physical realm and failure to recognize this fact as you struggle day to day with your various internal and external problems, failure to realize this will bring you down. Your marriage... Your children, your career, your lust, your addictions, your fears, and anything else you can think of are part of this spiritual warfare. There is no neutral ground. There is no demilitarized zone. The devil and his demons team up with our old sin nature to keep us in sick bay and off the battlefield. Paul wrote to Timothy and said that we are surrounded by people who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. You hear that? And that's in the context Paul's writing about people in the church. Timothy's a pastor when he writes to him and he says, Many have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. Now if you and I are to have any hope of victory, it will start, this is our first point, with an honest and realistic assessment of the power of the devil and his forces, the spiritual realm. 
And if that's like something you think about once a year, you're already in trouble. This needs to be present in your thought on a regular basis. Second, our own weakness. Adam, the first man, was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. This sinless, perfect man also faced what Paul talks about here in this text, the wiles of the devil. He fell. Adam fell. Just think about that and the implications for you and me. If Adam couldn't stand, who are we to stand? And if we do a survey of the Old Testament saints and the patriarchs and the kings and the prophets, all of them fell as well. Even a man like David, a man after God's own heart, he fell. He was overcome. And when we try to stand in our own strength, what do the Scriptures tell us? 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Pride, arrogance, self-confidence. I can do it myself. Anyone who tries to give you the impression that this is easy has substituted something else for the Christian faith. Because there are no shortcuts. And if you're so strong, then why have you failed so many times? I know the answer. You know the answer. Because you're really weak. You and I need the power of God to save us, and we still need the power of God to live the Christian life. It's not just I need God to rescue me way back then when I became a Christian. I need that. I need Him right now. I need Him today. It will not be done apart from the church. It will not be done alone on your own terms. Following Christ is an all-or-nothing proposition, and it starts with self-denial and taking up a cross. As Paul wrote to Timothy, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Luther was right in his great hymn again, A mighty fortress. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. But our weakness is not the end of the story here. If all I had to give you today was the power of the devil and your weakness, this would be a very depressing message. Through our weakness... God's strength is perfected. God told Paul, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God loves to take teenage boys like David to take down giants like Goliath. He used fishermen and other ordinary men to turn the world upside down. You see, when he takes ordinary men and women and boys and girls in their weakness with all their frailties... He then does something for them and in them and with them. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen, you can put your name in here, my name. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to, to bring to naught the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. This is the glory of, of Christian salvation. It's not you and God. It's not you plus God. It's not God helping you. Your contribution, my contribution, is my weakness. My righteousness, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. All the good stuff. That's what that is. It's 100% Him. And then he takes us in our nothingness, in our weakness. He says, all right, now I've got you where I want you. Now I can use you. Now I can employ you. Now I will use you as a mighty weapon in my hands. He goes on in that same text in 1 Corinthians 1 when he says, why? So that no flesh, no flesh should glory in his presence. God, me and you, you know, we're a team. I'm the, God's my co-pilot. How ridiculous. But of Him, Jesus, of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord. So, our third point, the power of God. Having seen the power of the devil and having realized my own weakness, knowing that I am engaged in warfare with him and that I am up against this powerful force, what am I to do next? And the text says, strength will come in the power of his might, not my might, God's might. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous Run to it and are safe. His name represents who and what He is. And so the first thing we have to do is recognize the greatness of His power. In effect, Paul says, stop looking at the devil. Stop looking to yourself and start looking to the power of God. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him who is the head of what? Of all principality and power. Remember, those are the forces that are fighting us. Christ is the head of those. He's the boss. He's the king. He's the ruler. So I ask, how well do you know Him? If he is little more than the man upstairs, then forget about it. If you're to tap into his power, you're going to really need to know him intimately. Hebrews 1, 1 1-3. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers 
by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Let me just paraphrase that. You want to know God, you've got to know Jesus the Son. He's the manifestation. He's the exact representation. He's the, he became flesh. He's the one we see. He's the one we hear. He's the one that spoke the world into existence. That's how powerful He is. Do you remember what Jesus said to some of the so-called Bible scholars of His day? The Sadducees, they could quote chapter and verse. Well, I don't guess they had chapters and verses yet, but they could quote lots of Scripture. This is a mysterious thing for Jesus to say, but it, it makes sense when you think about it. He said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. These are the Bible scholars. You're missing the point, he says. Yes, you can quote words. You see, I've seen this too often. There's this kind of mechanical, academic, technical reading of Scripture that yields nothing useful for warfare. It's where Christians are bored with the simple truths of Scripture. We have to have something profound and cool, preferably academic and sophisticated. But let me say that if your reading of Scripture is not transforming your life and your marriage and your family and everything else, then you are missing the point. You are doing a great, you have a great error not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. It's in the Scriptures where we come to know God and where we come to know the power of God. How many times have you looked to yourself and how has that worked? Jesus has already gone through all of it and He was left standing. He doesn't wobble. He doesn't fail. The world, the flesh, and the devil could do nothing to Him. And just wrapping up with an illustration of the power of Christ. All the record, the historical record of Jesus' interaction with demons. Those are not just there to entertain us and give us interesting stories. They're there to teach us about his power over this spiritual realm that we're dealing with. Jesus can command the demons and they must obey him. Matthew 8, 28-32. And when he, Jesus, had come to the other side, to the country of the uh, Gadarenes there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time, before the end of time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding, so the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they, when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. 
Is that the guy you want on your side? The right man on your side? Matthew 17, 14 through 18. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and that child was cured that very hour. Here's an example of the power of his might. Another example seen in his temptation. After he was attacked and tested by the devil himself, the head tempter. After hand-to-hand combat, the devil was easily and utterly defeated. The most powerful demonstration of his power and might over against the principalities, against the powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host, and against the wickedness in the heavenly places is seen in the resurrection. There at the cross, when all seemed dark, when all seemed lost, it looked like the old serpent had won. It was the very image of defeat, wasn't it? They nailed him to a cross and hoisted him up. They mocked and laughed. They spat and they struck And there in his humiliation for all the world to see, they called on him. You remember what they said to him? And those who passed by, there he is on the cross, blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking with the scribes and elders, said, Well, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. But what was really happening in that moment? Two other passages. Colossians 2.15, referring to the cross. Jesus, having disarmed principalities and powers, is referencing his resurrection, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. John 12, 31, 32, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The grave could not hold him. He burst forth in victory. Death, the last enemy, which is the ultimate effect of sin and evil, is defeated by the power of his might. 
He has conquered all his and our enemies, and he has made them his footstool. So, acknowledge the devil, forget yourself, and look to him. Let's pray. We are consoled, Father, that we need not fear men or devils, for there is nothing so strong that you cannot overrule it by the strength of your might. Our trials can never be so great as to overcome your power to deliver us. That power by which you brought light out of darkness and set the boundaries of the ocean and dried up the Red Sea by a rebuke can calm the turmoil of our spirits. And with one word, level the spiritual Goliaths that threaten us. There is no resistance that you cannot overcome. No stronghold that you cannot demolish. No tower that you can't level. And now, Lord God Almighty, may your power be pressed upon our minds. May we not lack deep thoughts of it. For while we acknowledge your strength, yet we often fear the slightest things. Many things we assent to in our beliefs, and yet doubt in our lives. We frequently fear the power of men more than your power. And if we fail to believe and trust your power, then we cannot pray or live or know your rich blessing. May we truly come to trust you, to cast our weak and powerless selves into your mighty arms. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8, 31 through 39. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who, is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The things Paul is referring to are the myriad. He starts out this passage, what then shall we say of these things? What things? He's referring to the myriad of sufferings in this world, to the spiritual warfare, the battles, the sorrow, the trials, the disappointments, the surprises, the, the chaos. Sin and rebellion against God, which started first with Satan's rebellion. And then it spread to the angels and then to men. And it unleashed 
the cosmic turmoil that we are all caught up in. And if you think it can't get worse, then you haven't read much history. But we have been given assurance of victory in Jesus. The Apostle John describes Jesus this way. And I looked and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. This is not Greek mythology. This is reality. As we come to sit at this table, a table that is prepared for us in the presence of our enemies, we come to be strengthened in the Lord so that we might go out from here in the power of his might. Amen. O God, indeed, we are surprised always by the resurrection. What a happy surprise. Israel rejoiced when Egypt died upon the shore. And we have a far greater joy because our Redeemer's foe lays crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposition. He broke the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. He is our gracious surety, apprehended for payment of our debt. He comes forth from the prison house of the grave free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Where is the proof that his vicarious offering was accepted, that the claims of justice were satisfied, that Satan's head has been crushed? He lives. He lives. We have our assurance that in Christ we too died. In him we also live. In his victory we triumph. In his ascension we shall be glorified. Bless us now, Father, as we gather around tables to fellowship, to eat, to rest, to rejoice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Amen.